Welcome to the One House Podcast Undergrad Series. I'm your host, Ellen, and today we're joined by our co-host, Sean, and our guest, Camilo, who is a business operations associate at Bungalow. He has a pretty unique path to the startup world, but I'll let him elaborate in a little bit. How's everyone doing today? Doing good. I'm doing great. Awesome. So, Camila, why don't you start us off on where you're from and how did you get to Haas? Totally. So, I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. Colombia is a beautiful, unique country in that people there are super family-oriented. It's a lot of fun, but it's also a country stricken by violence and a lot of poverty. So, I grew up in a little bit of that context, like a very privileged, beautiful family environment and just like physically beautiful country as well. But having exposure to like bombs and communist guerrillas. And I was very lucky that I was in a big metropolis, the capital. But I don't know if you all know this, Colombia has the longest civil conflict in the Western Hemisphere. And people just don't know about that. They know about it being the biggest exporter of cocaine and maybe coffee. But it's an amazing country. All our people are really awesome. And I'm really, really proud of being Colombian. How I got to Haast is kind of a funny story. So I had a really good friend in high school. She came to Berkeley Engineering on a summer school. And then once she got back, she said, oh, you should apply to Berkeley. I had a friend at the time that was studying at UCSB. And I remember thinking like, oh, how cool would it be to go to Santa Barbara? Like <laughs> that would be the dream school, just being at the beach and I applied to UCSB almost out of like, a, let's live the Zoe 101 life. And then also applied to Berkeley. So, you know, the, the stars aligned. I was very lucky um, and got into Berkeley. And then I remember my first day of international orientation. Everyone was like, what's your major? And I said, oh, it's econ because I wanted to study econ. And everyone said, you know, you can just say you're Prihas. And I swear, I didn't even know what Haas was. I had to go back and Google, like, what is Haas? What is Berkeley Haas? What are people talking about? So all kind of like sweet coincidences of life. Yeah, I then ultimately applied, got in, and, you know, really, really loved the experience, which I'm sure we'll get to talk a little bit more about. So deciding to go to Haas, obviously, was the beginning of your journey. After graduating from Haas, you went to Bridgespan, which is a social impact consulting firm. Was there something that helped you get there or what was your thought process like? So the biggest reason why I ended up choosing Haas over econ Mm -hmm. or some other combination was because I started my uh, college education thinking that I was going to be an impact investor, that, you know, Impact investing was the panacea, like the dream come true job. You could help the world do positive Mm -hmm. things for the world, tangible, like environmental or health investments, while also having a profitable business that then feeds back into that investment. So when I was applying to colleges, my interviewer for UPenn was a guy, his name is Alejandro, who started the first impact investing bank in Colombia. And they basically bought uh, and sold debt for certain enterprises in agriculture, health, low-income housing. And I, I was shocked that that was an industry. 
He told me about SOCAP, the Social Capital Markets Conference, which I ended up volunteering at years later. And that's what drew me to impact investing. And then impact investing ultimately drew me to Haas. I've always really, really deeply believed that I personally want to like leave the world and people who I touch better. And that has been kind of a, a key part of what I wanted to do with my business major and just my education, my career broadly. So to Ellen's point about how I got to Bridgepan, I got lucky. And Bridgepan is, is an amazing company, one of, I think, uh, few companies that really allows people to start out their careers in the social sector. And for me, I think that was the biggest turning point between choosing Bridgepan over other for-profit consulting firms. And that was because I really wanted to test whether I, I could have a career in the social sector. What I found was the most amazing mm -hmm. group of, of colleagues and people who wanted to push everyone to be better and to do better, especially for people experiencing poverty uh, or you know, just situations that are unfavorable, both in the States and across the world. I also did realize that working with nonprofits and philanthropy is very much something I could exclusively pursue in the U.S. Either that or some form of, of global aid work, which I'm not as interested in. And that realization came just, it's, it was tough for me to deal with that, knowing that I, I do eventually want to go back to Colombia and help my country, whether that is by starting businesses that employ people or provide goods and services to those who need them, the goal of going back home or serving my country in a way that I thought was like meaningful. Right. What were some resources at Haas that helped you along this journey? I mean, I think by far my friends were the biggest influence. And that's something I was thinking about. Like Haas is a really competitive place. And at the same time, others really push you in a way that I think is amazing. So like not settling for X or Y, sharing opportunities, having a little bit of that pressure, like, oh, wow, Ellen is so accomplished. She's doing all these awesome things. The fact that you were just kind of surrounded by this amazing group of people was a consistent source of motivation uh, and inspiration. There were many times where I literally had jaw-dropping moments from like lecture or I remember his name is Steve Chu or Stephen Chu. I gave a lecture at one of the dean's lecture at Haas. And I remember walking away from that just thinking like, wow, I am so, so fortunate to be here in these rooms with these people. And I just need to make the best out of it. Like it's a full send mm -hmm. or no send at all situation. <laughs> and that, that's what I, what I tried to, to do with my whole Berkeley experience. And I'm, I'm really grateful. It was, you know, like a lot of hard work, like it is for everyone. Mm -hmm. But making it meaningful is something I will always be very grateful for. Yeah, it's definitely what you make of it, the Haas experience. And from there, from Bridgespan, you went into the startup world. What was the thought process behind that? And obviously a really big change. I know you're still relatively new to the startup world, but would be good to hear from that perspective. So I think that the, the biggest thread in my education was like social entrepreneurship. During my sophomore year, me and a really close friend who is now my, my current roommate started mm -hmm. like a nonprofit called Seated Capital. We ended up fundraising and won 
uh, grant from the Big Ideas competition at Berkeley through the Blum Center. I love the Blum Center. Uh, it's an amazing resource for students going into social innovation, social enterprise, and impact investing. So while business and investing and some of the more traditional subjects like finance were, were a big part of my education too, I think entrepreneurship was as well. More recently, I've operated under the assumption that I don't necessarily want to be an impact investor, but more so mm-hmm. a social entrepreneur. And as a result of that, and also based on the experience I had at Bridgeband, working and advising these, like Bridgeband works with a lot of ultra high net worth individuals, some of which have built their own foundations, but the wealth for those foundations have, has come from building these amazing companies companies that are run smoothly, that are publicly traded. I I really saw myself needing to build judgment. So like enterprise level decision making, what does it mean to weigh choices and priorities and resources when you have to execute on those, right? It's very different to do that from an advising perspective than from you having to choose that strategy and then execute on it. So I, I ended up Going to Hive, Hive is, is basically a startup that does data labeling and, and custom machine learning models for enterprise. Mm-hmm. The reason for going to Hive was really the opportunity to, to get exposure to the CEO and, and his decision making. What does it look like to run a technology company? And then eventually realize that my role was a function of, of Hive's kind of growth trajectory and journey that needed to be more sales oriented. And and while sales, I actually think is a skill that is highly underrated, especially in an environment like Haas and, and people who only choose to go into like banking, consulting or tech. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not something that I deeply want to pursue. And, and uh, that was another big reason for why then I moved to Bungalow. To be completely frank, the biggest reason I also moved to Bungalow is my senior year at Haas, I interned for Bungalow and Atomic Venture Capital. Uh, Atomic is the incubating venture fund. Andrew Collins, who's the CEO of Bungalow, was an EIR about two and a half years ago. And a lot of the work I did with Atomic was directly with Andrew. So I had a personal relationship with him. He's built an amazing team. It's incredibly energizing. And it's really incredible to see the culture he's built the product he's built, how he thinks about managing a company and his leadership. So it's like really been a privilege to be back, I guess, at Bungalow. And I just started, but have a lot of big projects, things to be working on that I'm really excited about. On social entrepreneurship, you had mentioned that you had made this shift from impact investing to a social entrepreneurship in your head. Can you explain to our listeners what social entrepreneurship is and and what it means to you? I think being an entrepreneur on its own is incredibly hard. And building a business, building a company, whether it's a small business or a really large business, everything that you need to think about and do, you kind of had like the odds stack against you. I -hmm. think being a social entrepreneur is choosing to have maybe even more variables to have to think through. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're optimizing for profit in a social entrepreneurship context, you would also have to be thinking about other outcomes that you're working towards. So if it's, you know, solar city, you need to be thinking about 
the emissions that you're going to reduce as a product of having more solar panels in homes or mm-hmm. things along those lines. While working at Bridgeband, I was fortunate to work with some of the most incredible social entrepreneurs. Being a social entrepreneur is really, really, really tough because you have to think about enterprise level decision making. You have to prioritize for both the financial sustainability of the business and its growth from a unit economics financial perspective and the outcomes you're trying to affect whether that's education, health, the environment. And a lot of these outcomes are very undefined, blurry. Like how do you measure whether your education program is having an impact or not? Mm -hmm. Whether your ed tech product is really improving people's ability to have a more successful career or whether your fintech product really is providing more accessibility versus giving people a bank account that they might not use. So things like that, I think, are the nuances of social entrepreneurship. There's a lot of human-centered design involved. I find that to be really, really interesting and also incredibly complex. Weirdly enough, social entrepreneurship is huge in Colombia and a lot of other sort of emerging economies. And that's because there is no social sector. There is no philanthropy and nonprofits foundations. So the institutional capital impact investors are actually supporting businesses that can fill some of that gap, providing services while being profitable. That's why I personally still feel very energized uh, about being a social entrepreneur one day. If that can happen back home, that would be a dream come true. Can you share a little bit about Bungalow and what it is? Totally. So Bungalow is a co-living marketplace. The company's mission really is to provide accessible, affordable, really high-quality homes to people primarily in uh, urban areas across the United States. So the company has properties and manages properties across 12 markets in the U.S. And we basically provide a lot of people access to rooms, great roommates, and then facilitate the move-in and move-out process. You could think of it as something like an Airbnb for new grads or or people moving from city to city. I think the company right now is thinking a lot about like the difference between providing housing versus a home. It's really tough to get at those things. Just like what beyond the basic hierarchy of needs of housing can mm-hmm. you provide for residents and users to have a, a truly delightful experience? To be honest, it's hard. There's a lot of complexity and nuance to Mm-hmm. how people live and if they don't know each other so many things can be amazing or not so amazing about mm-hmm. your living situation and i think the company while we definitely have product market fit and have grown incredibly mm-hmm. we're still thinking about what it looks like to really give people homes and make it a delightful experience You are a business operations associate. So what does that really mean for a startup like Bungalow? I know growing very quickly, probably making some pretty important strategic decisions as well. Are you part of that or are you more running the operations? What does that really look like? So I think BizOps changes a lot by the company Mm -hmm. that you're working at. At Bungalow, I think it's a combination of two things. So the first is actually standing up 
new units of the business. And as an example, the business operations team of Bungalow in the past six months has stood up what is now a whole unit called property operations. And before we were using outsource maintenance coordinators for mm-hmm. just anything that needed to be maintained in a, in a home. In the past six months, the BizOps team set up a whole unit that now lets us internally manage 80% of all maintenance requests. Things like that is a lot of what the BizOps team does. So primarily mm-hmm. focused on what uh, resources do we need to allocate or better design to improve our contribution margin and, and free cash flow at the market and company level. And then the second piece is really, like you were saying, Ellen, around kind of the strategy of the business. So serving a little bit of the typical internal consultant role that some BizOps teams mm-hmm. play, but really, really grounded in tying financial metrics and operational metrics to that strategy. I am super impressed with Bungalow's data systems and data collection. Mm-hmm. I think we really have a, a powerful, like an ability to to test and measure those tests, which uh, I think can be really tough. And of course, there's a lot of work we still need to do there. But it's really awesome to be able to say, hey, why don't we go and look into ways to optimize our utilities and then actually have the data to to look at the impact of those tests. Do you guys have a process on how you, especially in BizOps, how you prioritize what initiatives to work on next? Yeah, so I don't know if you've heard the term OKRs. John Doerr wrote a book about it. Andy Grove basically coined the concept and its objectives and key results. You have an objective and then you track key results against those. The company has four to six OKRs every quarter and everything that anyone at the company is doing has to tie to one of those six OKRs. So with the given you know, health crisis and recessionary cycle that we might be going into, Bungalow actually revisited its OKRs recently. And we prioritize resource allocation within our team and across the company against those OKRs. So the ones that I'm primarily working on are, are OKRs against our contribution margin, our free cash flow, and resident renewals primarily. There's a few others, but those are the ones that I am primarily focused on. And, and we use those as, as guiding principles. I found them to be really helpful. I actually read the book that John wrote. Mm-hmm. It's a cool, powerful concept if implemented well. I think it, it does have to carry throughout the organization. You know, obviously this podcast is made for past, current, and future Haas students. So I guess looking back, was there something that you would have done differently or any advice for the undergrad students at Haas? I am a very practical person. And and I think Haas nudges you to be even more practical, just like the concept of the Pareto principle, 80-20, like what is the the 20% of the work or the output that will get me 80% of where I need to be or 80% of the answer has been true, I think, since I started at Haas and definitely throughout my Mm -hmm. career as well. And I think sometimes it's, it's really powerful to like be impractical, like make decisions that are tougher and that, you know, require just like a lot of, of, of discipline and, and, and things that you're going to ask yourself and, and people will ask yourself, like, why am I doing this? So 
like LMU doubling with stats, I think is, is amazing. And I'm sure you asked yourself so many times, like, <laughs> why am I doing this again? Right. And I think just having that knowledge is so, so powerful. So something I wish I would have done a little bit more of is really pushing myself beyond what I knew was like enough. And that's not just for classes or a given assignment. But for instance, now I think I would have loved like double majoring in biology. I really love science and plants and I wish it would have been something I had made the time for. I think I never did because uh, it was impractical. But mm -hmm. I think people who really go out of their way to to do those things and, and really take advantage of the experiences that they can have access to get the most out of Haas. So to wrap up, Ellen created this fun round of quick questions that we fire off at the end. You want to start us off? Ellen? Yeah, so the first one is a seasonal question. What are you doing to keep yourself sane during this quarantine? I practice gratitude or like pray in every meal. I'm not very religious, but I started doing that. We have friends over that have basically started sheltered in place with us. And it's really mm -hmm. awesome to be thankful for all the things that we do have right now. Cool. And what content are you consuming right now? It could be a book, a show, movies. Not too much content, weirdly enough. I, I started reading Love in the Time of Cholera before coronavirus started, and I'm about to finish it, but it's just kind of ironic. But that's the book that I'm reading. <laughs> that's funny because it's. I think a lot of these stories, too, are very pertinent and help us stay sane in the sense that you are reminded that this is not the first time that you know <laughs> humanity has had a pandemic and this won't be the totally. last. I think sometimes people feel distressed because they feel like the situation is so unique to their own life. When mm -hmm. you broaden that, it's happened to not just other people around the world, but throughout history. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. So next question is, what is your best productivity hack? I love Pomodoro. 25 minutes, it's like incredible what you can do in, in 25 minutes if you're using them right. And then, you know, the five minutes for random things or a break. Yeah, I work really well when using that technique. Awesome. And what was your favorite thing about Haas or Berkeley? Could be anything. That's tough. I remember the buttermilk chicken sandwich at FIFO, which was amazing, but... <laughs> I think by far, I am really thankful for my for, for my lectures with Professor Frank Schultz and with Professor Robert Chandra, who unfortunately passed mm -hmm. last year. Like his class and getting to know him as an educator, a Berkeley supporter and a human being was really trajectory changing for me and by far the best educational experience that, that Berkeley gave me. So that was my favorite thing about Haas for sure. Rob awesome. Chandra has touched a lot of people's lives. This is definitely, I can say at least like the fourth or fifth time his name's been brought up yeah. on the podcast. Well, cool. I think that wraps up our show today. Thank you again, Camilo. And thank you, Sean, for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the One Haas podcast, the undergrad series. 
If you like our content, please like and subscribe to our channel and give us a review. You can also check out more episodes and hear from past and current Haas students on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on onehaas.org. Until next time, and go Bears!